This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your host, Radio Joe Hughes, and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Hey, wherever you're listening from, and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus. This week is uh, episode, I don't even know what episode we're on here anymore, John. It's 564. And uh, we're, we're doing something a little different. Uh, first time at the world headquarters, we have our guest here. Uh, Sherry Solomon is joining us. Very happy to have that happen, actually. She's from Silver Springs, Maryland. Uh, does her training down in good old Rockville, Maryland, which we used to go to quite a bit when IAQA's headquarters were there. Before we get started, though, let's thank our platinum sponsor. IAQ Radio Platinum Sponsor is John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. I also want to thank our gold sponsors, Particles Plus, Healthy Indoors Magazine, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, and AEML Inc. Laboratory. And, of course, our association sponsors, Siri, the Cleaning Industry Research Institute, the Indoor Air Quality Association, and the Restoration Industry Association. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnick at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man with this week's IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Hello, everyone. Congratulations to John Calla, CIH. North Carolina Department of Transportation in Raleigh, North Carolina, who was first to identify Svante Arrhenius as the scientist who in 1896 calculated that cutting CO2 in half would suffice to produce an ice age. He further calculated that a doubling of atmospheric CO2 would give a total warming of five to six degrees Celsius. The IQ radio trivia question for today Friday, November 8th, 2019, has been sponsored by Ideas, a solution chemistry company providing unique solutions to odor removal, surface cleaning, and decontamination problems. Here's today's IAQ radio trivia question. How many organisms are on the World Health Organization's list of bacterial threats? Back to you, Joe. All right. Thank you, Cliff. So today's guest is Sherry Solomon, Esquire. Uh, She's the president of Clean Health Environmental Inc., or LLC, and they are in, uh, like I said before, Rockville, Maryland. Clean Health provides comprehensive industrial hygiene, infection control, and OSHA training services. Um, She's an attorney by trade. Combined with her experience in, in the industrial hygiene field, she holds a unique expertise and understanding of liability prevention techniques. Sherry was uh, got her Bachelor of Arts at I didn't know, the University of Florida and That's her right. doctorate from Catholic University in uh, D.C. area. Yes, correct? sir. Welcome. Good to have you here. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm just thrilled we have someone in the studio. We haven't done this in a long time, Cliff. Hey, it's amazing. I, it's great. I think the last time was at your office there, but uh, welcome to the World Headquarters. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's talk a little bit about, um, you have a law degree, but you're not practicing law. Um, Why not? And at this point in your career, what what got you into the IEQ instead of the law? Yeah, it's it's an interesting path, just as many in the industry, not a direct path into indoor air quality. Uh, Started my career as um, a focus on environmental regulatory law during law school. and was interested in more of the policy um, behind environmental issues. And uh, after law school, started my career as a legislative analyst with the apartment industry, the National Apartment Association, National Multi-Housing Council, and I was responsible for identifying any issues that were impacting the apartment industry from an environmental perspective. So whether it was building on wetlands or urban sprawl issues, I was responsible for um, the environmental concerns. And at that point, Mold um, became a huge issue in the industry. I was getting calls from our members in California. They were being sued for toxic mold. 
I didn't know what that meant at the what time. What year is this? This curious. was about 1999. Okay. Uh, right at the beginning. Of right the at the beginning. <laughs> so I was there in the right time in the right place right. and uh, started researching and learning more about mold and um, sort of fell into indoor air quality. Lead-based paint regulations were coming down at that point as well. And after doing the lobbying thing for a few years, decided to practice as an industrial hygienist. I didn't really want to get into uh, the law. I was more interested in the policy side of things. I like to help people. And as a consultant, that's what I get to do. Interesting. So you, you work for the Apartment Association, and that's as a legislative analyst. So I guess you're keeping an eye on what's brewing in the state legislatures and on the federal level. And um, I'm curious... At that point in time, the lead RRP was a kind of just yes. becoming a big deal. Yes. Um, was the apartment industry as concerned about that as I, I got the impression they were? Yeah, it's interesting because I was there at the apartment industry from 1999 to 2002, and we were working on the RRP rule back then. Okay. It wasn't implemented until 2010, as we know. It took 18 years from the initial law that's passed in 1992 for the actual implementation of the RRP rule. 92. Yes. Who signed that? That was George. That would be uh, Clinton. Clinton signed that yes, one. Okay. Yes. But it, it was, I think it was actually passed before him. Perhaps. And eventually, wow, a long time. Long, long time. time. Yes. Long time in coming. And I'm, I'm also curious, um, I guess you kind of told us how you got involved with indoor environmental quality. It's kind of like mold. But how about the infection control side of things? How did you get involved in that as heavily as you are now? I noticed your website, there's basically two you know, major areas of practice, the right. infection control and the indoor air quality, we'll call it for lack of a better term. Exactly, exactly. So as practicing as an industrial hygienist for many years, I uh, started focusing on healthcare about 12 to 15 years ago. And we were first getting into healthcare facilities, looking at occupational exposures. So that sort of was our introduction into healthcare, uh, looking at the radiologists and their potential exposure, looking at the environmental services, housekeeping staff, and identifying different occupational exposures related to the chemicals they were using. And so being in there for a few years, sort of working on the occupational exposures, I started really watching the industry, looking at the industry, and recognizing that the issue of healthcare-associated infections and infection prevention surrounding cleaning and disinfection was emerging as a major issue and something that the uh, federal government would be focusing on. So mm -hmm. to started, uh, decided to start Clean Health Environmental about five years ago. Still doing industrial hygiene, what I love, lead, asbestos, mold, but getting more so into the environmental uh, infection prevention. That's interesting. Yeah. Cliff, I know that's an area that uh, you've been keenly interested in. I wonder if you want to follow up with anything on that topic. Well, sure. Um, it, it seems that we cannot go into a healthcare facility that's not under construction. <laughs> and, you know, they're always building, and I'm, I'm not sure exactly why, but I guess they need to be bigger and, and so on and so forth. I was wondering... Uh, what is an infection control risk assessment and, you know, what sort of experience do you have with that? Yeah, uh, infection control risk assessment or ICRA, as we call it, is one of the key risk assessments that a healthcare facility needs to go through prior to conducting from a minor maintenance activity to a major construction project. And basically what an infection control risk assessment does, it, it looks at the patient population where you're doing the work and where you may be adjacent to, and you're looking at the amount of disturbance, how much dust is this going to create. And based on those two parameters, we determine what class ICRA project it's going to be. So a class one ICRA would be a minimal of moving a ceiling tile to look for some asbestos mm -hmm to a class four where you're talking about negative air pressure, containment, uh, significant engineering controls. And really the focus obviously is the dust we're creating during those projects. How do we minimize that opportunity for cross-contamination? And, and you do the training for that as well? So I do. I've been doing that training for many years. It's really focused for the maintenance folks that are working in the healthcare facility. So a lot okay. of times I'll go into the healthcare facility and train the maintenance staff. Um, general contractors, subcontractors, anyone that's working in a healthcare facility really needs to understand ICRA 
And we're seeing it more and more in the contracts, in the agreements with healthcare facilities. Mm-hmm. Hey, if you want to work in our hospital, we want to see some ICRA training. So it's been um, something that's really valuable and one of my favorite trainings to do because it just has a real big impact. How is that training um, governed? I mean, is there an OSHA requirement there? Or, I mean, is there a, a DC-approved training? Is it? How does that how does that work? Yeah, it's a good question. There really is no um, federal or state regulatory requirements. It's more based on best practice, industry standard of care, um, making your best faith efforts to do the right thing. And then, as I mentioned, contractual obligations that okay. the healthcare facility wants to know you have some basic understanding of infection control before they'll hire you to work in that healthcare facility. So any training provider could do that, but certainly would help to have background in that area and some experience doing that type of thing and then you have to write your own program or are there programs out there that you can kind of steal from or borrow from or I guess is a better term yeah um, we, I call it professional plagiarism okay <laughs> um, but no for, the, for this program uh, I use industry guidances um, APIC is one of the primary industry That's organizations What's that the Association for? for prevention and infection of epidemiology I'm not exactly sure exactly, Um, APIC, and they have a guidance document that they published in 2014-2015 that's focused on renovation and construction in healthcare. So that's one of the primary documents. CDC, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, obviously have a number of guidance documents out there that we utilize. So it's really just bringing the different industry guideline standards together, but it's not a formal federally or state-regulated program. And it sounds like most of your training is for maintenance staff. Do you also do some like open enrollment where contractors maybe come in and send their people prior to doing any work in a hospital? Exactly. So we do both private classes for facilities or for general contractors. I'll go into a large general contractor, train their entire team, or we'll have public classes where we'll have a few folks from different uh, companies come in and uh, get trained. Okay. Um, do you, do you Cliff, do did you have a follow up on that one? Go ahead. I'm sorry. Do do, do you do a lot of hands-on training with this? Yes. Uh, I am a big proponent of hands-on training. People learn in different ways. Some are, some listen, some do. And I always find when I do my evaluations at the end, what did you find most helpful with the training? 80% of the time it's the hands-on. They like to do it. They like to know what they're doing. And uh, that's a huge part of the training. So the the hands-on would be like how to, Put up a construction barrier, how to wear your PPE, how exactly. to use engineering controls. Exactly. Okay. Different mechanisms for validating engineering controls, looking at negative pressure, proper donning and doffing of personal protective equipment, um, setting up your critical barriers. A lot of our IEQ pros out there that um, probably do a lot of mold, maybe some asbestos, I think they'd like to get more involved in the healthcare yeah. and yeah. infection control. Um, do you do a class on how to do uh, the consulting side as opposed to the contracting side. I assume that there are times when these projects also have a, a consultant overseeing it. Is that something you do? Or is yeah, that- I mean, part of the pr- training program is also geared towards the, the consultants who are helping on that side of it. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the opportunities for consultants to work in healthcare is really helping them organize their construction projects. So mm-hmm. how are we going to set up the ICRA Where are we going to create our critical barriers? How are we going to establish negative pressure? How are we going to document that? With a law degree and as an industrial hygienist, it's sort of a unique perspective because I'm thinking about liability management. I'm thinking about um, making sure that you're preventing um, opportunities for uh, liability, but also having the industrial hygiene background to know what to do logistically for that. Is it... Uh, are you doing a lot of particle counting on these projects? So you've got inside the containment area or outside of the, the containment area, the, the barriers, you're doing particle counting to make sure that the particulate's not getting too high in that area? Yeah, so I've been hired to do that regularly for healthcare facilities. So what we'll do is um, it's not inside the containment, but we'll come in prior to the project and we'll set the baseline parameters for the particulates in that environment that would typically be there. Then we'll come back during the construction project, and we'll take our particle readings around the adjacent perimeter of the containment just to validate that they're equal to or below that baseline. Now, that being said, 
There are many other reasons, as we all know, that you may have high levels of particulate, and it may have nothing to do with why, uh, with the construction failing or the containment breaching. It could be a completely secondary source. It could even be outdoors have changed that day. Completely. And so, you know, I always say it's a tool in our tool bag, but it is not the end-all be-all. Okay. And at at the end of these projects, are they doing, uh, commonly doing things like you know, bacteria sampling, are you doing um, surface samples, air samples, a combination, none of the above, or is it a mixed bag? Yeah, you know, that's a good question. Um, We don't really recommend high amounts of sampling in healthcare facilities. So the 2003 uh, CDC guidelines on infection control, in fact, recommends not doing um, microbiological sampling unless you have a very specific reason for doing it. And Mm -hmm. routine sampling is discouraged. Hmm. And the concern is, is, you know, once you get those results, what are you going to actually do with them? So I am not a huge proponent of sampling in general, um, but in healthcare in particular, we try to limit that as much as possible. I see. Interesting. Okay. And and we talked a little bit about how other IEQs or IEQ consultants would get into that arena. I mean, how how did you get into it? I, maybe you mentioned this already, but yeah. did you get a call out of nowhere or did you have a case? Or how? You know, it's always that first client that comes to you and says, hey, I have some work for you to do in a healthcare facility. And then it sort of snowballs from there. Okay. So I think, interestingly enough, I think the first project I worked on in a healthcare facility was um, related to Legionella and uh, Legionella bacteria. Okay. And, um, and that's not something I actually focus on, but that was sort of my introduction into healthcare, mm-hmm. and that was 12, 15 years ago now, and then sort of just picks up from there. Interesting. Yeah. And I would, you know, if someone was interested in getting into that arena, I mean, are there any recommendations, any, any like, gatekeepers that you try and, you know, get to or through or whatever the case may be? Uh, there's a lot of different avenues to get in there. I think obviously the first is education and experience and making sure you're trained and you know what they're going to be looking for and having that basic knowledge and education, getting some of that experience under your belt Mm -hmm. and making sure that you feel comfortable. It is unique. You're working in a healthcare environment. You're working amongst a sensitive population. And so you really want to have the expertise and the competence to be able to walk confidently into the door and share your expertise. Would you maybe start with um, like personal care homes or, you know, kind of maybe work your way up to the hospital? (laughs) Yeah, I didn't actually go that route, but that might have been an easier route to go. Um, You know, it's, as you said, healthcare is a big big industry. Um, There's a lot of opportunity there. The way that we're moving in healthcare is away from the traditional hospital setting into occupational, um, into um, ambulatory surgery centers, into rehab facilities. So with that, there are more facilities that will need to be assessed. There's more facilities that will need to focus on infection prevention. And that's why it's a wonderful opportunity for industrial hygienists. Yeah, it's a growing area. It is a growing area. And um, with that, uh, you know, there's a lot of different levels of expertise from a doctor's office all the way up to a hospital where you're dealing with um, highly potential sensitive patients. Do you do any of the, um, they have a testing protocol for, for instance, if you're compounding in a pharmacy, um, the la- the hoods, I guess, the testing there, do you do any of that? I don't. Okay. I know the USP 979 and that's the 800, it. yes, yeah. there's there are a number of issues there. That's not something I'm focused on right okay. now. Okay. Cliff, did you want to follow up at all on the healthcare? I have one more, but I uh, wanted to make sure you get in. Um, well, I think while we're talking about healthcare, we probably should think about uh, discussing healthcare acquired infections and uh, tactics and strategies that you found effective, uh, you know, in helping your clients. If you could provide some recommendations there. Yeah, yeah, I would love to talk about that. So um, I'm sure as many of us recognize, healthcare associated infections is a huge issue in this country right now. Um, we are dealing with 722,000 uh, healthcare-associated infections a year um, per the CDC and 75,000 deaths. Uh, so 
The good news is we're moving in the right direction, um, down from 1.9 million in 2007. I just saw that. Yeah. 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 Um, so we are moving in the right direction, but we have a long way to go. And my focus, obviously, when it comes to infection prevention is related to more of the maintenance and the infection control risk assessment. So the maintenance team and how they're maintaining their buildings, mm-hmm. but also the environmental services staff. So mm-hmm. in a hospital, we do not call them housekeepers because okay. they are not housekeepers. They are not keeping a house. They are house. part of the healthcare team and keeping the patient's healthy and safe. And so as an environmental services technician, the cleaning and disinfection is even more of a focus in the past number of years than it has ever been before. Because we have research that is consistently showing that surface contamination can lead to healthcare associated infections. In addition, because of the antibiotic resistance issues that are emerging, Mm -hmm. um, where our antibiotics are not um, uh, re- they're becoming resistant to some of the um, ana- t- different types of pathogens out there. It's requ- requiring more of a focus and a role on cleaning and disinfection in healthcare. So there's been a lot of focus on giving the environmental services enough time to clean and disinfect the rooms. That, okay. in my opinion, is one of the hugest issues. The time is short, the turnover, we got to get them in. Yes, but did you have an opportunity to properly disinfect that room with proper discharge cleaning before that new patient comes in the door? And there's actually a study that shows that if you went into a room after a patient that had a healthcare-associated infection, you have a 120% higher chance of getting that infection. I noticed another study came out just this week, I think, and I put a link to it in the show announcement, and it was about C. diff and uh, resistant C. diff and the use of, and they, again, suggested that Clorox was the best product at this point in time. Are you still seeing a lot of use of uh, that type of product in hospitals, or are they moving to different products? Yeah, great question. So bleach is still something that's used very regularly. Okay. Um, Over the past number of years, there's been a lot of alternatives to a bleach solution that can be very successful in killing C. diff. Um, Hydrogen peroxide-based types of disinfectants have been very successful. And as an industrial hygienist who's looking at occupational exposures, when I audit a healthcare facility, help create their policies and procedures and their programs, I am encouraging them to move away from bleach to other disinfectants that are EPA registered for fungicide for C. diff, but not having to use those caustic and irritating type of bleach solutions. Okay. Cliff, yeah. I know that's your, your baby there. Any, uh, any thoughts, comments, questions? Um, well, you know, I think when you mentioned Clorox, and it's a big company. And, you know, when I saw the study, Joe, it said Clorox, and I wasn't sure exactly which of the many products uh, that they have was actually uh, being utilized. And if I'm not mistaken, they've come up with a new technology that they're selling that actually uh, provides equipment for uh, application of it uh, as well. And um, I'm trying to remember what the exact chemistry is with it. Um, John, can you scroll back, scroll back up to the title on that? Just give everybody a look at it. Yeah, it just came out this week. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, the one the the I'm trying to think of the name of the group that uh, the Steramist is. I think what you're talking about, okay. Cliff. Is that right? No, no, no. Steramist <laughs> is 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 a technology that I think originally came out of one of the government labs, and that's a hydrogen peroxide, uh, you know, technology, uh, you know, that gets charged by. Uh, you know, electricity, uh, but no, I'm not, no, Clorox has a machine. Um, Is it now, the 360? It might be the 360, yeah, but I'm not sure what they're applying with it in terms of the chemistry. I, I think it's something, it may be a bleach derivative, but uh, um, I think it's something other than just chlorine bleach. Interesting topic. We'll have to uh, do a little more on that as time goes on. Yeah, you know, it's, it's an emerging emerging issue for sure. Stuff. Yeah. 
Um, all right. Well, it looks like no, we still have some time before halftime. I kind of want to get into the, the training you do and the D.C. approved mold inspector and mold supervisor. Is that the right? Remediator supervisor. Remediator yes. supervisor. Yes. Okay. We've had a bunch of people on the show talking about mold licensing laws. And there was, you know, Florida has a law. New York has a law. Virginia had a law yes. and they repealed that law yes. and uh, Texas is looking at getting rid of theirs, I believe. Um, New York. New York uh, yes. and, Louisiana. and Louisiana. Exactly. Uh, yes. So what led to the law in D.C.? And if you would tell listeners a little bit about what that law requires. Sure. Yeah. So I've been doing training on mold assessors and rem- for mold assessors and remediators for 18 years um, in the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area. So we have a little bit of a challenge in our part of the country where we're dealing with three different jurisdictions, three different sets of regulations. So that could be challenging for my clients. Maryland had a law, too, but they never they had a they passed a law, but never funded it. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. All I was right. very involved with that as well. The wow. um, we'll get to Maryland. All right. Okay. <laughs> let's, start um, let's start with DC. So the whole impetus for the DC law, from what I understand, is that there were a number of tenants' rights activist groups okay. that felt that there were a number of tenants in DC that were having mold issues and they weren't being adequately addressed, okay. and they didn't feel that there was any proper recourse for that, and they were frustrated. And so they got this law passed, and then they handed over to the Department of Energy and Environment um, to help implement the regulate to the laws um, with regulation. And it is, first of all, under the Landlord Tenant Act, and that's something that's important to recognize. Uh, okay. All right. Yeah. So this regulation only impacts landlord tenant relationships in DC, residential landlord tenant relationships in DC. So if you are have any sort of rental relationship, whether it's you're renting out your apartment or your multifamily housing apartment, you will need to be licensed to do mold assessment or mold remediation in those units or common areas if there's more than 10 square feet of visible mold growth in an affected area. Oh, that visible, that word visible, I'm sure that comes yes, up a lot. Okay. Yes. What's yes. visible? Right. And that what I tell my clients is that visible doesn't mean accessible. Visible leads visible. So if you have to cut a wall and you can then visually see the mold, it is still visible. Okay. So visible is not accessible. All right. Yes. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, now, DC, they, right now it's just the, the assessors and the supervisors. Is there a requirement that they be independent of each other if they're working on the same project? Yes, Joe, great question. Okay, so that has been an ongoing challenge with the regulation. So initially when the rule was proposed, uh, it said that you could not do both. Through compromise, mm-hmm. at the uh, when the final rule was published, they said that you can do both so long as you disclose that conflict of interest to the client. So there has to be some disclosure. Similar to what Virginia had at one time. Exactly. I was actually trying to find that language for D.C. so they could use the Virginia language, but uh, we weren't able to find that. Uh, Let me know after we're done. All right. All right. We'll talk about it. Um, And with the requirements of uh, the conflict of interest, in fact, I was just at an Environmental Information Association meeting last week, um, Keith Keemer, who's the uh, running the DC program, mm-hmm. presented, and they are looking to, uh, they have published a proposed rule to amend that component of the regulation to say that a individual cannot do both mold assessment and mold remediation on the same project. Okay. All right. So that has been introduced and proposed. Um, according to Keith Keemer, that will be published as a proposed rule in early December. Mm-hmm. We shall see. Mm-hmm. And then it has to go through the rulemaking process. But that is mm-hmm. something they're recognizing as a concern. And um, it has been amended to not allow that. So the, the requirement of notification, it sounds like to me, hasn't really um, stopped that concern. There, there's been obviously some kind of... Uh, feedback to the department saying that, you know, this same person did both on this job and there was a problem. Is that accurate? To I say? would definitely say that's accurate. I can't speak for uh, Keith or okay. the DDOE, but from what I gather from talking with industry folks, 
um, it seems that folks, uh, both from the tenant side and the landlord side and the consultant and remediator side are finding challenges with doing both. And, and I've always been of the position that um, you really do want to avoid that conflict of interest and have two separate entities performing the assessment and the remediation. But doesn't that add to the cost? That is the other flip of the coin. Okay. And, but you in know, this case, you're dealing with landlords, so you can just pass that on to the landlords. <laughs> right, so exactly. I, they're I happen to be a they're landlord, made of money. So, right. Right. Yeah, they they're made of money. <laughs> i got one lousy property now. <laughs> right, now. exactly. Okay. Uh, let's, let's do this. Uh, Cliff, do you have anything you want to do? Before, uh, any questions before halftime? I, I do. Every time I hear this conflict of interest argument, it just raises my blood pressure. Because, <laughs> you know, either people are trustworthy or they're not. You know, when you buy a home, uh, you have the same home inspector inspecting the home for everything from termites to radon. And in many situations, pest control companies can do uh, the pest inspection and can do the treatment. And there don't seem to be the problems in pest control and other industries that there are in mold. And I somehow think that this conflict of interest is part of the Industrial Hygienist Full Employment Act. Because, <laughs> you know, they just want to go in and, and, you know, what's crazy is now we're fighting it in fire restoration, which is alternatively different. And, Where is it at? One, one, and one of the arguments is, well, we have it in mold and we have it in asbestos and we should also have it in fire restoration. And yeah. I don't believe that, you know, I, I think people, uh, I, I don't see any reason why they can't do both if they're ethical. And I think most people hopefully are ethical that are in business. But well, that's me, just my opinion. Let me add, uh, ask this question. Uh, under the D.C. law, do you have to have an assessment? Okay. And that has to be done by a licensed mold assessor. Yeah. So let me just briefly explain okay. how the regulation works. So um, once a resident complains about a suspect fungal growth in their unit or a common area, the landlord then has seven days to inspect that area. Okay. Um, now, they can hire a licensed mold assessor for that, but let's be realistic. They're going to send their maintenance supervisor up there to do an initial inspection, sure. right? I understand. So the maintenance supervisor goes in, does the initial inspection. If they identify more than 10 square feet in a visible growth in an affected area, then they must hire first a mold assessor, a licensed professional mold assessor to do the assessment and provide the remediation protocol, scope of work, okay. the scope of work, the okay. remediation protocol. Then it's handed over to the licensed mold remediator who the landlord must also hire. And the landlord hires the mold remediator. And then we come back as the licensed mold assessor at the end to do the, the verification. So they are required to hire both mold assessor and a mold remediator over 10 square feet. Interesting. And is there a standard method for doing your post remediation verification? You know, I think the regulation doesn't, uh, they are very specific about some components of the requirements, but not others. Mm -hmm. um, they do leave the verification a little bit more open-ended to um, the licensed professional that's conducting it. Um, for example, sampling, that's obviously always something that we're talking about. There's no mandate to do post-remediation sampling. Um, they do reference analytical uh, so that sort of was questionable and vague as to what that would require. Um, DDOE has verified that that could be, you know, temperature, relative humidity readings, moisture measurements, thermal imaging, analytical does not necessarily need to be lab related. Okay. But that being said, many industrial hygienists obviously are doing some sort of air sampling or sampling at the end. Surface sampling, whatever. What about um, uh, the verification that the moisture problem has been fixed. Is that required? So it is. Um, there is a reference to that. You uh, are encouraged to share with the client that the source of the moisture needs to be addressed prior to. Um, okay. Upon the verification, there's also, you know, reference that that needs to be part of it to, to verify that the source of the moisture has been addressed. And can anyone verify that? Does the landlord verify? Who who yeah, that's that? that's a little vague, to be honest with you. It okay. says the industrial hygienist. Um, it personally, what I'll do is if I um, speak with the client and ask if the source has been addressed, for example, say it was a plumbing issue, 
I'll put in my post-termination verification report according to the client. Plumber A was there at that point and addressed the source of the moisture. So it may not be my responsibility or the mold assessor's responsibility, but we do want to document that it has been addressed. Okay. All right. Let's uh, stop and thank our sponsors. We'll uh, be back in 90 seconds after we pay a few bills here and uh, rejoin our conversation with Sherry Solomon. IAQ Radio Platinum Sponsor is John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Gold sponsors are Particles Plus Engineers and Manufacturers of feature-rich particle counters and air quality monitoring instrumentation. Learn more at ParticlesPlus.com. Count on us. Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions available at HealthyIndoors.com. And AEML Laboratories, free FedEx shipping, great pricing, same-day results, and never a rush fee. Learn more at AEMLinc.com. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at WolfSense.com. Association sponsors are the Indoor Air Quality Association, a multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Learn more at iaqa.org and RIA, the Restoration Industry Association, the granddaddy of the restoration industry. Network with leaders. Learn more at restorationindustry.org. Siri, the Cleaning Industry Research Institute. See more deeply through science and research. Learn more at siriscience.org. That's C-I-R-I science.org. Okay, we're back to the second half of our interview. We've got Sherry Solomon from Clean Health LLC, Clean Health Environmental LLC, Rockville, Maryland. And uh, we, when we left off at halftime, we were talking about the mold licensing law in D.C., and it looks like we've got a couple of chat questions. So I think I'll uh, give you one of those first. What if the landlord does not fix the source? Can a reasonably a reasonable goal be obtained by all parties? Well, let's start with the first part of that. If if the landlord doesn't fix the source, is there any? I guess under the landlord tenant law, which is why you made you emphasized that. I noticed. Yes. Uh, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I mean beyond the issue of the mold licensing and the mold regulations and the mold law, there's always that landlord tenant relationship of keeping a home in a habitable condition, right? right? So clearly, the water damage issue and the fixing it is a key component of addressing the uh, mold remediation. So that's always the first step. Right. Um, so we definitely recognize that uh, that's the first step. That being said, in the mold law itself, really all it says is that the landlord, which I haven't mentioned yet, has 30 days to fix once the inspection has been conducted, there's mold identified, suspect fungal growth visually, visually identified. They have 30 days to fix to remediate the mold. Hmm. Now, that 30-day time frame might sound like a significant amount of time, but when we talk about hiring uh, those two I folks, was thinking the opposite. exactly. That doesn't sound like much no, time it's at not all. much time at all. And as we all know, if you it could take months to figure out the source of the problem and address that right. before you even get to the mold issue. Are there enough licensed assessors and remediators to even do all that work? I think there are. I, I'd say I looked at the website recently. There's maybe about 250, um, okay. both both combined uh, assessors and remediators. So How big is DC? I don't know. I don't know either. Yeah, I don't know. John, can you check on that for me? What's the pop? Because I know in Florida, I think the last I checked, there were six or 7,000. Okay, there's 633,000 people in the DC area. There you go. What about the state of Florida, John? So we got six or seven thousand in the Florida pop uh, in in the Florida twenty one point three million so wow. uh, over twenty times more okay so two fifty three hundred inspectors and remediators hopefully we'll be able to cover that you also mentioned on the break 
um, there's a notification requirement that that takes me back to my asbestos days yes, and the knee shaps. Yeah. Uh, Ten days. Of, oh my goodness. My right. Mess. Right. Um, so it's a, it's a little unique the way DC has um, mandated notification. Who's responsible for notifying are the mold assessors and the mold remediators, not the property owners. Both. Interestingly, or, both. Okay. So the mold assessor must notify DC five days, within five days after they identified more than 10 square feet. You only need to notify DC if there's more than 10 square feet of visible growth. Okay. The mold assessor comes in, they confirm the more than 10 square feet, they must notify the District of Columbia. Okay. Now, as far as the notification, it is much easier than some of our uh, permits. You okay. log onto a website through your database, uh, you upload here's the location, this is how many square feet of mold, a little bit about the project, and you pr- press the button and that's your notification. And you have to so, put the property owner's name in there? Yes, you do. Okay. Yes, you do. Interesting. And then once the mold assessor notifies, then it goes over to their mold remediator. We provide them with the remediation protocol, and then they have to notify DC five calendar days before they start their remediation. Wow. Yes. However, there is an exemption, which we call the emergency exemption, which I've mentioned to my clients many times, (laughs) will probably be used very readily. Um, If the the mold will continue to grow, um, if you don't address it quickly, and the water intrusion cause the mold then you can apply the emergency exemption. And pretty much that's 99% of the time, right? So pretty common. Pretty common, exactly. I've got a text question from a listener here. and It's, do you think there is a better solution to this issue from a a legal viewpoint? So he's talking, or he or she, particularly about the separation between the consultant and the remediator. You know, I, I understand the challenge of conflict of interest because I do recognize that there's going to be a more, a more significant cost for the client at the end of the day. If we have parameters of ethics and we have uh, that recognition that in order to be licensed, you need to maintain that integrity, you need to be ethical, um, some validation of that through proper documentation, through proper notification, perhaps we can you know, limit that concern. Okay. I'm, uh, the other thing that, I, that always comes up with these mold regulations is about the uh, enforcement. That's the key. I guess that's the main term I wanted to use. If you don't enforce it and don't have the funds to enforce it, it only hurts the people that are trying to comply. Does that make sense? A hundred percent. And that came up at EIA last week. Um, And they, DOE has been very focused as of now. It's been three years now that this regulation has been implemented. Um, they've really been focused on the compliance and compliance assistance. Okay. Uh, that being said, I think they're sort of turning the corner at this point, and they are really um, starting to focus more so on the enforcement efforts. They okay. still want to compliance assistance. Um, I, knew, I do know that they're gathering some internal information. They're getting phone calls of concern, and they are, I think, turning the corner towards enforcement. Do they have the staff? I mean, that's... I don't know how big the department is. Right. Do you know? I don't. Um, okay. I, I know that uh, there may be some um, additional funding towards that. Okay. And that's the other thing is that we mentioned Maryland earlier, right? Yes. So they pass a law and says you have to have this mold licensing, and then they never funded the Home Improvement Commission, that's I right. believe it was. That's right. Uh, Are we still in that situation in Maryland? Yes, so we're still in that situation. So what happened in Maryland is they passed the law in 2008. It was only going to impact remediators. The assessors weren't going to be licensed. The trainers weren't going to be licensed, only the remediators. And it was for single-family homes because, as you just said, the law is an outline, right? And then we hand it over to an agency. In my humble opinion, they didn't hand it over to the right agency. If it okay. went to the Maryland Department of Environment, who's already regulating lead and asbestos, okay. it probably would have made more sense. But they handed it over to the Maryland Home Improvement Commission. And they argued it was an unfunded mandate. They didn't have the expertise to do it. And it really never went anywhere. Um, in full disclosure, in 2013, I did meet with the Maryland Home Improvement Commission um, the executive director at the time and I wrote the entire regulation in two days. 
Hmm. presented in front of the Maryland Home Improvement Commission. We were anxious and excited to get this up and running. He left the MHIC and it never went anywhere. So that's where we are today. Let's put on the legal hat. Yes. I've got a state with a law that says I have to have a license to do something, but I can't get the license. What do I do? The law has not been implemented. There's nowhere to get a license. It is what it is. Okay. Adhere to all the other requirements of the of the states. In the past, I had heard some people were just getting a home improvement contractor's license in hopes that even though they didn't do home improvement, mm-hmm. they just did mold. Yes. Is that does that make sense? So you know, it's interesting. Right on the Maryland Home Improvement Commission website, it says that you only need an MHIC license if you are doing the build back. So if you are a contractor that's just doing the mold remediation, for example, and the removal, Mm -hmm. you don't need an MHIC license. It's only once that you start with the put back that a license is required. Now, as a Maryland resident myself, I found that somewhat interesting Uh because if I have a contractor coming into my own home, I would assume that their MHIC license, if they're pulling things out or putting things back. (laughs) But um, under MHIC, you do not. You mentioned EIA, the Environmental Information Association. I believe a long time ago they were the National Asbestos Council, right. and then they kind of diverged into more areas. Do they have a position on licensing, or are they in favor of or against licensing? Do they do any lobbying? Yeah, that's a good question. So um, I'm actually president of the Mid-Atlantic chapter um, okay. of the Environmental Information Association, and really, our intention for the industry is to be uh, an educator to for networking to bring people together. So lobbying or that sort of um, focus is really not part of EIA. It's really more of the education and, and um, networking of our industry. All right. We also earlier mentioned um, enforcement issues. And that immediately brings to my mind the lead RRP rule. Yes. Because uh, I have a small construction company here in the uh, Shanksville area, Indian Lake. Most of the homes we work in are, are newer than 1978, but occasionally we'll get one. And um, I will guarantee there's not a contractor within 50 miles of here or more, maybe 75, that has the lead RRP and there's no enforcement whatsoever. Is Are you seeing the same thing in your area? So I strongly agree with you that there is a lack of compliance when it comes to RRP. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, there have been some significant enforcement actions that have occurred. Um, they are uh, somewhat piecemeal, I would say, um, but we're in Region 3 here uh, of the yep. EPA, and, and there have been some recent enforcement actions that have come down. So whereas uh, a lot of the industry is not in compliance, I, obviously I would encourage you to be in compliance. The enforcement is minimum, but it, there is most definitely uh, a number of enforcement actions that actually just recently came down. And that's EPA, right? They, right. They would enforce. That is correct. That's okay. federal EPA that would enforce. And I'm not sure. I, I haven't really followed lead and asbestos that closely over the last 10 years. I mean, I do the show, but um, is EPA enforcement uh, and division, have they been funded adequately the last, let's say, three years? <laughs> Random number, three years. <laughs> Random number. <laughs> Just curious. I thought so, I sort of heard they were, but maybe I'm mistaken. Yeah, you know, I, I was actually just talking to some of my friends that work at EPA. Um, the, the, I think the administrative uh, administration's stance is that lead is remains a high priority, and that that's something that is a focus uh, for them and the EPA. Um, that being said, I've also heard there's been some funding on the inside that may not be as published as, um, you know, they might want. So in theory, what they say and what they find may be two different things. (laughs) Well, as I just recently, there was a good bit of money that went to the lead program. I'm Mm -hmm. pretty sure more than they expected. So I I think it was a little unexpected, but Hey, yeah. Yeah. Like I said, they recognize that it is a priority. So that's great news. Okay, great. Cliff, let me let you jump in here. Any, uh, any follow-ups or questions? No, I've I've driven through DC many, many times. And, you know, it seems to me that, you know, you have this old housing stock where you have these row houses that are literally an entire block. And these things go for block and block. It would just seem, really, really hard to, you know, for landlords to comply with this. And I'm not even sure how they could. 
You know, that brings up a good question, though, Cliff. What if the leak, the water, I mean, a lot of these people share a wall. Mm-hmm. And the leaks, my neighbor's leak, but it's affecting my property. I'm the landlord of, I own this property here. The property right next door has a leak. It's coming into my property. It's causing this mold issue. How do they handle that? Yeah, I mean, that's the challenge, right? Fixing the source of the moisture problem is the biggest issue. And this is something... Um, that a lot of landlords grapple with. You know, what I say to my clients from a legal perspective and an industrial hygiene perspective is Mm -hmm. to make your best efforts, make your good faith efforts. So if we need to first fix the source of the moisture before we want to conduct the remediation in D.C. under the law, and we recognize that it's going to take a period of time to assess and address that moisture intrusion issue, then and make your best good faith efforts to do that. So what I say to my clients is if, EP, if DC calls you up in 32 days and says, why have you not addressed this mold issue in this attendance apartment? And you say, well, I know it's busy. We're crazy. We're overwhelmed. You know, we're going to get to it next week. Oh, that may complain. Right. Tired of hearing it. Yeah, right. Yeah. That might exactly, that <laughs> might not really be well received. But if you say, yes, we recognize it's a building envelope issue, we've hired a building envelope engineer, we're moving towards it, make your good faith effort. I promise you that DC will take that more kindly than just ignoring it or complaining about it or uh, ignoring it at all. I've got a text question. Uh, We did part two of The Heat Is On last week with Tom Phillips from uh, California. We're talking about climate change. Uh, issues and heating and overheating and how we would, you know, help to build more sustainable buildings in the future. The question is, how will climate change increase mold issues going forward? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Mm. I mean, clearly, as our earth warms, um, more um, bacteria, more mold, more fungus, that's just going to be a more natural part of our environment. So, um, you know, on the climate change issue, Beyond the mold issue, then gets back to my infection prevention healthcare of these antibiotic resistant pathogens and um, the concerns there. As we deal with climate change and we find additional anti resistant bacteria, um, more opportunities for transfer of infection. I mean, unfortunately, uh, climate change is is very good for our industry in, a, in the most unfortunate way. Mm-hmm. I've noticed here. At Indian Lake, most people never had air conditioning, and mm-hmm. now they're asking for air conditioning, or they are um, at least dehumidifying more regularly, which is a good thing. Um, and from what I understand, some climates it's getting hotter and drier, but others are actually wetter. Right. And, and this is part of the wetter. Is it like that in in the DC area? No doubt. No okay. doubt. We had our wettest winter last, our our wettest year last year. Interesting. Yes. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, let's let's go on a little bit. I, I've, I've got several questions left that I want to get to before we wrap this up. And one is, how do we get more young people, minorities, and women involved in the indoor environment and indoor environmental quality? Yeah, uh, that's a tough question there, Joe. <laughs> um, you know, like I said, my path wasn't direct. Um, I've met a lot of amazing um, women, minorities that um, are focused on uh, public health. So I think recognizing the younger generation that's coming up and their focus on climate change, their recognition that environmental policies need to change. I think that we will find more of the, uh, uh, the millennial generation and the Gen Z generation um, focused on that because it's impacting their future and they know that. So we have a lot of the younger um, folks getting into environmental policy and environmental you have a, issues. a few in your own company, right? I, I do, mean, yes. Two other women there? Or yes, three, yes. And they're out doing field work? or uh, tra- Helping with the training, the helping training. with the um, program development, working in healthcare facilities, doing audits for different uh, okay. healthcare facilities, huh. um, a lot, lots of different roles. Do you find there, there's more interest? Uh, because it, you, you bring up some good points. There's more interest, certainly, in, in the climate and in and environments. And then there's lead and water and there's the mold issue and so on. I, I would imagine more uh, mothers are interested exactly. in this. I mean, there's the one of our sponsors is Healthy Indoors Magazine. And I noticed every month in there he has an article from, I can't remember, the, the Clean 
Mother's Clean Air. I can't remember okay. the exact name, but uh, yeah, it seems like that might be a way to, is to you know get them interested in uh, their own indoor environment, exactly. and then maybe they'll be interested in others. Right. What are some uh, emerging issues that, that I know you're awfully busy with the healthcare and with the mold and the lead and all that, but uh, what other emerging things are you looking at? Your young professional. Oh, thanks, Joe. I appreciate that. <laughs> thanks for following me on. Thank you. <laughs> hey, I, you're certainly young to me. <laughs> I mean, you know, I started Clean Health Environmental five years ago. Um, December okay. 1st will be my five-year anniversary. And it's Thank you. And it's, it's really was the, the impetus was really the healthcare side of the business. And mm-hmm. uh, there's a number of emerging, emerging technologies uh, that we're looking at as far as cleaning and disinfection. Uh, okay. Continuous disinfection, for example, is one of the more emerging technologies. Continuous, Continuous disinfection. disinfection. What do we mean by that? So there's a number of different processes um, where in a steramist that you guys talked about earlier, right. UV lights, UV light um, hydrogen face, peroxide yeah. vapor, typically the way we're using that technology now is Upon room discharge, uh, we um, call mm-hmm. the overturn not terminal cleaning. We like to pre- uh, prefer discharge cleaning because yeah, terminal cleaning has a different connotation yeah, in healthcare. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, upon discharge cleaning as a secondary disinfection, we will um, recommend using UV light or hydrogen peroxide vapor. Okay. That's not what is necessarily continuous disinfection. Continuous disinfection is literally in the room, there is either a lower type of UV light or other types of technologies attached to the um, mechanical systems that will use Uh, oxidation treatments to continually um, disinfect the room. Because the reality is the environmental services is cleaning that high-touch surface area, let's say that bed rail, once a day. Well, the average bed rail is touched 150 to 200 times a day. hmm. So what's happening between that cleaning at 9 a.m., on Monday morning versus that cleaning at 9 a.m. on Tuesday morning. So if there's some opportunity for continuous disinfection, that's really an emerging um, issue and opportunity in our industry. Interesting. Yeah. That's interesting. So what other high-touch areas do you go over in your training for people? The bed rail seems like a very important one. Uh, what other ones? Yeah, so the CDC published a guideline um, in 2010 that talks about high-touch surface areas, and they identified – 17 high touch surface areas in a room. Okay. Uh, so we're talking about the light switch, the call uh, button, the doorknob, the toilet flusher handle, handle yeah. exactly. <laughs> Anything that you're touching. But that being said, there's been a lot of research that has showed that we can't just focus on high touch surface areas. We also need to look at other areas that may not be considered high touch, but of concern. Um, I was part of a four year program under the Maryland Patient Safety Center called the Clean Collaborative, and we did ATP monitoring on different high-touch surface areas mm-hmm. in the healthcare facility. And one that stuck out was windowsills. So mm-hmm. windowsills are not considered a high-touch surface area under CDC, but think about when you go into a hospital, there's limited horizontal surfaces. Right. The woman's going to put her purse on there. The doctor's going to come in and put his um, you know, board on there. And so it's right. used regularly. And that was one of the highest RLUs we found. What about the highest high-touch surface? What do hospitals do about their beds? <laughs> That's what scares me going into a hospital. I, and not just hospitals. Uh, there they are. Yeah, Thank great. you, John. Yeah. Those are your high-touch yeah. surfaces. Perfect. I mean, the beds are continuous touch. Exactly. Uh, are, I mean, I guess there's ways of disinfecting them. How often do they get new beds? I mean, do you yeah, know? No, it, beds are the biggest issue. And, and one of the, the challenges is when the patient is in the bed. And one of the things I highlight in my training is that you want to educate the patient and explain why you want to clean around their bed, Mm -hmm. even if they're in it, right? A lot of environmental services will be, you know, hesitant to do that. And we really need to let them make sure that the environmental services staff is recognizes that they're an important part of the team and that they're there to minimize infections and that they educate the patients and why, you know, I'm sorry to bother you. I'm here to clean your room. I want to minimize, you know, and explain to them what you're doing and encourage them to clean as much of that area, even in an occupied environment. How do you clean a bed? I mean, is it a wet wiping or 
vacuuming or so, what's the best way? Yeah. So the Association for the Healthcare Environment have not mentioned them yet. Um, okay. They're one of the premier trade associations that represent the environmental services technicians in healthcare. And they have a, a, a number of amazing industry guidance documents related to just that. All right. uh, so um, dealing with the bed, in all honesty, the s- specific disinfection is typically done upon discharge. Mm-hmm. And so reality, like you said, you're not doing it on a regular basis. It's a significant process. It's removing the mattress. It's cleaning underneath. It's cleaning the bedboards. It's using the appropriate type of disinfectant that's not going to break down that material, but right. still adequately clean and disinfect. Still get into those porous materials. Right, and that's that's a whole other issue we can talk about is right. the issue of using disinfectants that are not suited for soft surfaces but are being used on them. And there's see. big issues there as well. Yeah. Cliff, let me let you jump in here. I know this is uh, <laughs> an area of your your expertise. You know, going back to the continuous disinfection, I mean, I could understand how antimicrobials could be built into uh, certain materials and as they're cleaned, um, you know, they can control, you know, an organism. I'm not sure how I understand how these oxidizing systems in an HVAC system or in some other system in that room are going to be able to deal with anything that's not in their immediate area. Yeah, I think there is a lot more research that needs to be done. And um, the technology has been used in Europe for a long period of time, but there's additional research that needs to be conducted. But basically, it attaches to the surfaces and and creates um, pretty much neutrality of those pathogens. Um, But, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's that. And then there's the antimicrobial, as you said, the, the surface coatings, things like that. Um, that are also, uh, you know, an, another part of perhaps helping with the solution. Um, again, though, however, the antimicrobial, uh, there's some pushback in the healthcare industry right now with um, using antimicrobials such as that because they're additionally creating that resistance, that antibiotic resistance as well. So um, there's a little bit of a challenge right now in healthcare with using antimicrobial type of surfaces. Hmm. Yeah. Hey, I got, we're, we're getting real, we're out of time, but we'll, can you stick around five minutes? Yes, I can. All right. I've got two quick text questions, and one is, I think, really a great question. My one daughter wants to get involved with the industry. What college degree would best prepare her? That is a good question. Yeah, when I saw that, I'm like, hmm, okay, thank you, Mike. Yes, thanks, Mike. Because I, uh, in hindsight, I, fo- I focused on political science because I wanted to go to law school. And um, But if I c- could go back again in time, I would have definitely done an environmental science. Um, environmental science, more so than environmental policy. Um, I was just looking at some resumes. And obviously, my, my passion is policy, but my reality is in the field yeah, doing yeah. the work and training. So um, having some real knowledge and education in environmental science, I, in my opinion, would be very valuable. Um, on the environmental, uh, industrial hygiene and the um, infection prevention side, master's in public health as well, okay. um, you know, is, is a very broad, but you can focus on um, different areas like occupational health and safety within a, ma- a master's in public health. That would pretty much be ideal. That would be ideal for you. Okay. Yeah, that would be ideal for there me. You go, yeah. Mike. All right, one final one here. Um, high-touch infections are a problem in nursing homes, etc. Is training adequate in these environments? I think I might know the answer to that one, Sherry. Yes, I think you do know the answer already. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, not at all. Um, I think long-term care facilities are moving in the right direction. Uh, there's a lot of changes from the regulatory perspective from the federal and from the state um, with the changes in our, um, our healthcare system, and they are required to be more accountable. Um, just in the past couple of years, uh, long-term care facilities are more accountable from a financial perspective with penalties and reimbursements uh, related to their HAIs where okay. they were not a number of years ago. So, uh, so I like think Medicaid it's changing. Insurance in general. Through Medicare, Medicaid payout primarily. Um, Private insurance can also, um, if you pick up a healthcare associated infection, are they going to pay for it or not if the healthcare facility caused it? And and that's one of the challenges. So I think long-term care is, um, has a long way to go, but I think they're moving in the right direction. Okay. 
Very good. Uh, Cliff, anything before we uh, wrap this up? I'm good, Joe. Thank you. All right, Sherry, before we go, we always like to give you the last word. Anything you'd like to add, anything we missed uh, that you'd like to have listeners uh, hear? Well, I just thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, I hope I've educated some folks. And if there's anything you ever need, feel free to look me up. Uh, We appreciate you coming up from Silver Springs, Maryland. And uh, great, great show today with Sherry Solomon. We call it Clean Health Environmental LLC, the next generation of IEQ pros. This is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to this week's guest, Sherry Solomon. To my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick, at the controls, John, you got to have faith. Most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners will be back in two weeks. I'm going to take the week off next week. I've got an anniversary coming up here, a big one, 30 years. So we'll be taking a little time off, and we'll be back in two two weeks with the next episode of IAQ Radio Plus. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening. 